Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Psycho, starring Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, John Gavin, Martin Balsam, and Janet Lee. Based on the book Psycho by Robert Block, screenplay by Joseph Stefano, and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. What are we, three and a half years in? And finally, we get to 1960s Psycho. Yeah. This had to have been a long time coming, or a film A. We will cover this at some point in the duration of this podcast. This is a big one. This is a heavy hitter and just film in general. Uh, Psycho. Yeah, from the files of we'll get there eventually, and there's five or six other ones in there that keep coming up, we at least can take one of those yeah. out of there because mm-hmm. it's... There's a lot of things that are long overdue. Yeah. But this is long overdue. This is a big one. So, yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Uh, First, we're going to start off with, we got, you know, just trying to finish off some of our bottles here. We got about four or five bottles we're going through. This is Pinhook. I think the horsey's name on this one is Bourbon Heist. Yep. So, Pinhook's really great. I like how they wax their bottles. Each one's got a different color, but they name every uh, different barrel after a different racehorse. But this is a pretty good bottle. So, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, not a bad, not a bad uh, drink. But Matt, before we get started here, I got a just a couple things I want to mention to you, just to kind of get your thoughts on. Uh, first thing, uh, trailer dropped uh, that later this week for Legendary Pictures Netflix exclusive release comes out next Friday. Actually, their new Texas Chainsaw Legacy reimagining, and I watched this trailer, and I don't think I've laughed uh, at, at hard at something in a really long time. But there's a moment halfway through where these kids in danger called this old elderly woman of can you come help us? And it's supposed to be Sally, the lone survivor from the original film, oh. literally pulling a Lori Strode. And I swear I thought she was going to say evil dies tonight as she's loading up her thing to come save these kids with shotguns and stuff. I was like, come on, Hollywood, what are you doing here? Not a copycat industry at all. Not, is it not, not even a little bit? Oh, it looks bad. It does not look like a good movie. Of course, I'm going to watch it next Friday, but mm-hmm. wow, I just can't believe it. it was just like, it was, it was like Halloween kills. all over. Again. Yeah. We'll see uh, of all the ones to reimagine. It's shocking that they did that one. And they're doing that thing too, where it's like, there's the original and then ignore all the excess that existed from the eighties. Mm-hmm remakes and and whatnot so that was the first thing i wanted to mention and then uh, i think this uh came through yesterday uh shooting started on uh universal pictures renfield yesterday nicholas holt is renfield and i think nicholas cage is dracula yeah you excited for that hell yeah i think we've mentioned that before but um yeah that 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 has the potential to be pretty wild and maybe the dark universe not in its original conception but with the gosling wolfman and that maybe uh Harkening back to some of these older universal monsters, that could be pretty cool. Maybe they're still trying in their own way. Yeah. I, and if not, you mean Invisible Man was good enough as a standalone? Like, I'd be happy with just, you know, good movies with that. If we're going to do the blueprint for how to build a universe, obviously Marvel's the go-to. Mm-hmm. It's really simple to do. Sure. All you have to do mm-hmm. is have a cameo here or there yeah. that starts the interconnectivity. Sure. So, look... I'm holding out hope. I don't know if I want Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise empowered by the ghosts of the or the powers of the mummy to be mm-hmm. the, the Tony Stark the of this. Pin, yeah, but 
Oh, there's look. Universal did that anyway. Like when we got in the yeah. latter stages of Universal, and we mm-hmm. did Dracula meets Wolfman and Laurel and Hardy, and they're, even some of that bullshit. They're the original ones. Yeah, that's all you have to do. Yeah. Someone's got to be able to figure out how to do like a new creature move from the Black Lagoon because other than its brief appearance as a Gilman in the Monster Squad, no one's ever tried to resurrect that character yeah. ever again. So that's the one I would like to see. I'm really curious to see how we're going to do with this Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage pairing in this. That could be wild or horrendous. It could be really cool. It could also be a total train wreck. Yeah. That's... When is that due? Do you know? Probably next year sometime. March of next year? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe March, October? Uh, September, October, yeah. We'll see. We will see, but let's dive right in. Hey, we, we got two good questions we got uh, yeah. for this week's episode, so let's dive right in with our flight question. In honor of, I uh, almost said Bernard Herman's music, in honor of Marion Crane's unfortunate turn off the road to end up at the Bates Motel that rainy night, which we'll get all into here in a little bit. Uh, what an unfortunate uh, turn of events for her character and an unfortunate destination. Um, so of any film locale, film vacation in film history, what are three places you don't want to go to for your vacation? Don't want to go to. Yes. <laughs> well, um, I think the first one that I don't want to go to is Amity Bay from Jaws. I'm going to double down on you with number three because that's also my pick as well. Um, there's a lot of problems there. A lot of problems. Uh, there's a mayor problem, first of all. <laughs> yeah. He's keeping the beaches open uh, when there's this shark uh, swimming around. But, man, I love the ocean. Uh, I love getting in there. I've done battle with uh, uh, sea creatures before. Uh, jellyfish have gotten me before. But I don't want to tangle with, as Quint says, 25-foot great white. No. <laughs> yeah, no way. Right. I don't want to end up like the Kittner boy. Or the dog. Yeah. Pippet. Pippet. <laughs> Pippet. Yeah, Amity Island. Yeah, maybe I'll hang out on the shore. I'm sure they got some great local seafood there, but man. And then for people just in general, uh, what Matt Hooper says in Jaws is actually true. Shark attacks occur in like really shallow, like five to 10 feet of water. It's not like way out there in the ocean. So (coughs) great. No way. (laughs) Yeah, great. What about your second place? Where aren't you going? The Overlook Hotel. Yeah. (laughs) No hard pass. Did you have that one too? I don't have the Overlook, um, but as, you know, just visiting the Overlook, maybe you're doing a skiing weekend or something, I don't know. But would you even think of volunteering for what Jack Torrance is going to, like, uh, I'm sure they're going to pay him well, but can you cabin fever stay in something for four months of just hotel? No, especially if you're going to stay in a cabin fever hotel and write. Yeah. Because that has a whole level of cabin fever built into it and, sure. and madness just sitting there with nothing coming out. Mm-hmm. No, hard, yeah. no, no, no. Again, we, we just talked about how we hate the winter. So, yeah, that's another hard pass for me as yeah. well. Yeah. What's no, your number two? Number two for me. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll get here eventually. We might be long dead by the time we can. But I do not want to go on vacation to Cohagen's Mars. Mm. Uh Velos Cohagen, whether it's the mutant uprising militia or the unstable pockets of Trebinium beneath the surface, 
I'm not even going to go to Venusville to be completely honest with you. It just does not look sanitary. No, right. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd probably go to Mars and just hang out in my Marriott suite. That doesn't mm. sound like much of a vacation. So, no. yeah, uh, Ronnie Cox's run uh, Mars uh, place, I am not going to. Good choice. <laughs> Number three for me. This is a broad compass um, or a broad encompassing answer. Okay. Any plane, train, or automobile that is the conduit to get people stuck in an element that is man versus nature as it crashes into some snowy Himalayan thing. Oh, okay. So that's more of the transport to vacation. So whether okay. it's Alive or Wolf or all of those fucking man versus nature movies sure. that I hate. Yeah. I'm not going. No. You're not getting on one of those. No. I'm not getting on a single one of them. You don't want to be on the plane uh, with the gremlin on the wing uh, in Twilight Zone, the nope. movie. Uh, yeah, you don't want... Trying to think of an, a, another one real quick here. You know, there's boating excursions with you know large sea monsters, open water, alive. Oh, yeah, hell the, no. All those. Yeah. No. Nope. Any consideration to the Poseidon? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great one. But well, no. cr- cruise ships, ladies and gentlemen, are not that much fun. <laughs> no, they're not actually, and really, really unsanitary. Unsanitary, and I don't need to be getting getting hit with a hundred foot rogue wig that's going to capsize the boat Eey, no way or the the confines of my rescue are going to be left to uh hard drinking ernest borgnine and gene hackman mm-hmm. uh poor roddy mcdowell yeah uh, but yeah okay that, that, that one that's a good one mine i gotta look up the name of it it's the titanic it's a little yeah i don't want to get on that boat either nope. you know what i mean yeah uh i do not want to attend my number one destination uh crossing it off my list i do not want to go to helsingland sweden to attend a Midsommar festival yet to be put into a giant grizzly bear and burned at the pyre Ugh. or plunged off a cliff to uh, compound fracture both my legs to be Ugh, smashed with a mallet. <laughs> to be smashed with a mallet in my face. Yeah. Hell no. Yeah. I, I don't need part of any of that type of cultish uh, celebration. Uh, I bet the food's great, but I don't want any part of it. <laughs> I echo that sentiment as well. Okay, excellent. Let's cross those destinations off our list. We're probably crossing the Bates Motel off our list as well. But let's go ahead and dive right into our review breakdown of Psycho. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway. And as you see, perfectly harmless looking. When in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has, as an adjunct, an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale. Although I don't know who's going to buy it now. So cool. Yeah. I can't think of any other director that would even consider advertising their movie. Like, the only person that could maybe come to mind might be, like, Quentin Tarantino. But what a cool way to market your film. It's just literally Hitchcock walking the set of the the film and talking about how horrific it is and uh, how normal it looks on the outside. It's the real horrors that await on the inside. But we'll get there here in a little bit. Let's start in Phoenix, Arizona, Friday, December 11th, 
2.42 p.m. in this hotel rendezvous with John Gavin, Sam Loomis, the original Sam Loomis, the OG, yep. and Marion Crane, Janet Lee. Yeah. Uh, for 1960 cinema, this is kind of a big deal, a big scene. You weren't used to seeing people thrusting about in bed in their negligee or shirtless, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um what do you think? We're kind of getting away from the haze code a little bit. There's still sensors in place to nip uh, some of these scenes, but Hitchcock's really pushing the envelope with this scene in particular. Sure is. Still, like you said, figuring mm-hmm. out where we fit in the haze code. Mm-hmm. And I guess he said middle finger. Yeah. Part of the reason I think this movie was given an NR as a rating. Um, There's a lot actually happening here that is subtle, which in that space, I think we find a lot of really good things that come from Alfred Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. The first thing is you brought up Vera, I'm sorry, um, Janet Lee's clothes specifically, Mm -hmm. they are white. I probably wouldn't go so far as to say illicit, but clandestine, and that's the relationship that we're seeing unfold between the original Sam Loomis. The original Sam Loomis. And Marion Crane. Why in a hotel? Yeah. Uh, why not take the day off? And then we get into that very strange conversation about turn mother's picture to the wall. And can we do this again? It's almost like it's a nooner for him. And she wants a little bit more. And he's considering it, but dragging his feet to get there. Sure. Yeah. I kind of wondered that myself a little bit this time. I was like, well, why don't these two just have a relationship? Like, why all the... Mm-hmm nefarious activity to to keep hiding it and he's got an ex or something that's still in the way and he's paying alimony and then uh he's in debt up to his eyeballs i imagine from some family from some family debts probably from owning owning this general store who wants to own that business uh but yeah it's a little bit and it's almost like maybe he likes her but he's still trying to pull away a little bit like he still wants one foot out the door so he's got some commitment issues uh, on her end, but yeah, it seems really shady of kind of kind of what they're doing here in this hotel. And tactfully presented by Hitchcock, mm-hmm. you get the idea. This is uh, a post-coital state, and despite the fact that I guess both seem, as far we can tell, physically satisfied. Yeah, neither one is <clears throat> emotionally. Yeah. Well, that's a bit troubling for. Marion, because in 1960, what does that paint her as? Right? Sort of, might I say, whorish? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And what was the the, the old term that they used back in the day, stepping out? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I think Norman illustrates this really well later in the my favorite scene of the movie, which is the parlor scene, when he says, we're all stuck in our little traps. And... She is. I mean, it's Phoenix. It's this hotel room. It's this shitty secretarial job getting harassed by their clientele. I mean, Marion's future looks so bleak, and I think Sam is that, like, light light at the end of the horizon. If I could just get to him and make it work, then I could just leave all this behind. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned, you know, too, I mean, all the bird imagery and metaphor in this film as well. I mean, we start with the bird's eye view POV looking down on Phoenix as we, the bird literally swoops into the hotel room. And then you have Marion's last name, Marion Crane, Crane right? this <laughs> obsession with this particular animal. And we'll point out the other instances later, but 
We got our little Hitchcock cameo. I don't think we mentioned. Did we mention Hitch's cameo last week? He's kind of like the, did, no. the, the clock tuner in the musician's apartment in Rear Window. Yeah. Here he's just standing on the sidewalk, but. You know, really cool. I mean, he would you go through links to like include these cameos. My favorite is probably how's Hitchcock going to show up in Lifeboat? But at the beginning of the film, there's a floating newspaper of like a dead man, and it's him. Yeah. So he found ways to do it no matter what. But here she works at this secretarial job, a real estate company, I think. Uh, and is this the Hitchcock's daughter? Uh, yeah, the secretary, Pat Hitchcock. Pat Hitchcock. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, you know, and they're talking about all this and that, and then this like kind of like oil baron, I imagine, comes in and really starts flirting it up with her. And even Pat Hitchcock mentions he was flirting with you. He probably wouldn't flirt with me. He noticed my wedding. My ring. wedding, yeah, that's it. <laughs> but he's doing something pretty crazy here, almost maybe a little reckless. I mean, forty thousand dollars in nineteen sixties money is probably still a lot of money. Yeah. And he's just, I guess, looking to buy some land and is just offloading it on this company and the kind of the warmish uh, manager of this place is like, I don't even want that in the building. So take it, go deposit at the bank. And, you know, when Marion sees this money, she's probably like, now what if, what if I could do something with this? What if I could just disappear? And here's my starting allowance, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So then she gets this idea. So we go back to her apartment. We're not in the hotel anymore, but there's been a change that's happened from the beginning to this scene. This is huge. So yeah, if you look at the same outfit that she is wearing after she leaves the bank with the $40,000 now stolen in her possession, she has decided to change her underwear from white to black. At its basic, basic level, white and black, if we're going to play the forces of good and evil, mm-hmm. light and dark. Yeah. It seems to then be okay to have some clandestine semi-affair at 2 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, but it is not okay to steal this money. In the legend, if you will, the key that Hitchcock is building around this. Yeah. All of a sudden, she has crossed some line, and because now she's changed into black, she's a tainted or less than pure woman. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting place for Hitchcock to go for someone that oftentimes punished his women in film for various actions. Yeah. The sex is okay, I guess, but theft isn't. Yeah, that's crossing the line. $40,000, like you said, is a lot of money, and she's buying herself a way out. And, I mean, she makes that transition, too, before she's even committed the act. I mean, she hasn't yeah. even gotten in her car and is down the... Yeah, at know. this point, she's not really guilty yet, is she? She's yeah. just holding on to the money. It's just the thought of it. It's it's mm-hmm. like the what-if aspect yeah. of it, and that color change is, is so significant because later when we have the cleansing moment of well, I'm going to go back and make things right. Then, you know, you kind of get that. There's a juxtaposition there between this scene and then that uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked color, uh, you know, a lot, maybe probably since uh, Shyamalan and Unbreakable and how he is really good at using colors. And, you know, much like when we talked in The Sixth Sense, I mean, he's very much a Hitchcock, you know, uh, modern Hitchcock. I mean, that was the label yeah. given to him. And that was something, you know, it's and it's crazy to, that Hitch is doing that in a black and white movie. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Where color is going to literally mean white or black, right? And we're able to make that distinction based on a brazier color. And again, the taboo natures we're getting into. But she gets in the car and as she's she's getting out of here, she's going to do it. And I always really like this moment too when she's supposed to be at home like with a migraine. Can I go finish out the day from home? And 
she sees the boss and the, the oil man crossing the street, and he just kind of gives her a double take of, Thought you were supposed to be at home. Yeah, homesick. Mm-hmm. And then we get the Bernard Herman music, and she's committed now. You know what I mean? There's no turning back. And so she's going, and I love this. And we get it more before she gets to the Bates Hotel, this conversation she has in her head of what she thinks they're saying about her, this paranoia of she was supposed to come in and deposit that money in there. Oh, you better go over there and call her bar and call her sister and this and that. And she's already like freaking out about it. But she's got to stop off on the side of the road. And this is kind of, you know, another bit of a slip up, uh, but another good suspenseful moment, I think, by Hitchcock. I want to I kind of want to know what you you think about this, this whole sequence, about probably about five or six minutes here. Uh, She gets stopped by a highway patrolman. He's like, you fell asleep? Are you kidding me? And he's like not buying it like from the get-go. And he never takes his like aviator sunglasses off. Um, I think he's played by James Remar in the remake, this particular highway patrolman. I don't know why I remember that specifically, but um, this guy's just like giving her a real hard time about it. It was like, so you turned off, you fell, fell asleep. Yeah, now is that a crime? Can I go on my way? And he follows her into whatever the nearest town is. And she's like, I got to get rid of this car. They're going to be looking for my plates, my thing. And so now when you go buy a car, you know, they run a credit check and they make sure you're good, that the car ain't stolen. Here in 1960, she's able to offload it and just pay $700 for this new car. And she ain't get some cash will work too. And I like how paranoid she is because she wants to get out of there as soon as possible. And this guy is asking her, do you want to test drive it? Do you want to do this with it, that with it? Um, and then the highway guy pulls up and he's just like watching her much like Michael Myers watching Lori from the classroom. Mm, yeah. And you're just like, this guy's knows. like, what do you think of this sequence? I mean, this is not like boost uh, scare spectacle, but in terms of getting caught, getting caught before you're able to even get out of town, like, what do you think of all of this? Um, I think it shows how worried she is about the actions that she's taken and terribly afraid of the consequences for these actions. Mm-hmm. She's thinking legally. Cops are going to throw me in jail. I'm going to lose my job. Shame, humiliation upon my family. Um, whatever else might go along with that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an interesting way to foreshadow how we make people pay for the sins that Hitchcock perceives that they've committed because although she's on the right path of mitigating the things that might change her life consequentially for this theft, she's completely off base when it comes to exactly what's really going to happen to her. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, that's funny is I think we're at like the 35-minute mark in this film. Mm-hmm. We are thinking at this point that this is a movie about... A money heist. A money laundering scheme. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of all the MacGuffins that he ever used. This is the best one. For sure. Yeah. And the one that is the most drawn out and played into like a really long inciting incident, if you want to be honest about it. Yeah. The whole first act is about this $40,000. I I love it. And none of the movie, except for the final shot in the film, have anything to do with it. I love it. I mean, it's uh, to to Stefano's credit, because just some differences from the novel, I'll kind of pepper those in. It's a fairly uh, faithful adaptation, but Marion's kind of setup is like two chapters of that book. I mean, Hitchcock and Stefano really stretched this out to really make it think this was a movie about Janet Lee and I'm going to go abscond with Sam Loomis and we're going to have this tawdry affair with $40,000. We're Mm going to 
uh, go to Sewataneo, <laughs> you know. That's weird. I was just going to say the same thing. Were you? Like, that's, yeah. that's the life we're going to have. And you you don't just don't know. I mean, for 1960s film audiences, unless you watch the trailer, and we don't watch trailers now like we do today when they, like, release and we're like, I must watch it. Texas Chainsaw. You're probably wondering, like, what kind of a turn is this movie going to take? They're unprepared for what's about to happen in the next 25, 30 minutes. Oh, yeah. And I love that. I love this MacGuffin, this money it's the best. It's, you know, there's the Unica key that we'll talk about here in a couple weeks. But this one, uh, you know, the the body in the in the in the chest of drawers and rope. It's like this unforgotten about, you know, element of it's unimportant, but it is important. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the best way to kind of sum up a MacGuffin is that, yeah, this $40,000. And every time I watch this scene, I, I was like, this cop's going to catch her and question her and she's going to get stuck right here. And when she just is ready to take off and then the guy's like, Hey miss, you forgot your bags. And yeah. Oh, just put them in the back. She like just gets out of there at the skin of her teeth. Yeah. And then this downpour deluge of like this thunderstorm that's going to force her off the road down the highway. And for 19 for to Hitchcock's credit too. I mean, he made this film Paramount wanted nothing to do with this. I think he had a contract with them and he had made, uh, vertigo and you know rear window and the north by northwest with them and like hitch we need another movie for you what do you want to do he's like i want to do psycho and like no you're not gonna do we don't want to make that type of movies he's like i'll do it you don't have to pay me uh instead uh i want 60 percent of the gross like oh my god like what a great negotiating tactic Hitch, we're still not going to fund this movie. I'll film it with my television crew of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yep. So he takes this low-budget television crew of a show that I never really watched because I always thought it was like B-level Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he's going to make this movie with this real low-budget crew with next to no money. And there's a shot here coming up when she's pulling up to the Bates Motel and Hitch puts the camera in the driver's seat of the car because he really wants to get a good shot of the Bates Motel neon lights. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, we people weren't doing that in 1960s cinema. They were doing static shots at a table talking like we're talking at the mics right now. Yep. Just the uncomfortableness of how that looks like to Marion and then us, the viewer. And for those that have seen it more than once, you just know, oh man, like now we're in it. Now we're in the, the devil's threshold here. Mm-hmm. Introduce Mr. Anthony Hopkins. <clears throat> Excuse me. Perkins. Anthony. <laughs> Hannibal <laughs> versus Norman. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Anthony, uh, both based on... Ed Gein. Ed Gein, to, mm-hmm. to some extent. Uh, so here we have Anthony, Anthony Perkins uh, as Norman Bates here. I love this performance. I think I prefaced last week, this is one of my all-time favorite film performances. Uh, and I like how neurotic and nervous... He just is. I mean, he's charming, but like an uncomfortable charming. It's like he's going to extra lengths to impress the girl that he likes. You know who he reminded me a lot of watching it last night was Andrew Garfield. Like if they made like a biopic of Perkins, like I could see him doing that. Even the way he plays Peter Parker in the Spider-Man films is kind of like this nervous kind of jittery kind of dude. I see that. Yeah. But, yeah, he's like, we have 12 rooms, 12 vacancies. Uh, yeah, well, I'll set you up one. You'll have room number one. He does a moment here, and I kind of want I want to know your thoughts on it. So he's having Marion fill out the hotel ledger. She puts Marion Samuels, so taking her and Sam's first name and kind of creating a name. Where are you from? City's all I really need for 
for the, for the books. And she looks at the paper and says Los Angeles. And he puts Los Angeles, and it almost looks like, like he's about to give her a different room key. And then he goes to room number one. Yep. Now, we know room one has the peephole the in peephole, it. peephole, right. What do you think it is it in there? Is it, oh, big city woman, like I've never met one from here before? Or what's your interpretation of that? Because I think that's fairly important. I think it's the struggle inside of Norman that we're seeing play out. If he gives her room six, she's probably... Going to go to sleep? And just have a normal night. Yeah. But he is aroused mm-hmm. by her. And so putting her in room one gives him access to all of the things she's trying to hide. Now that's that's a loaded comment. What I mean by that is there's a lot that she's trying to hide. If mm-hmm. it's the car and the money and this getaway and mm-hmm. this affair, I guess you could say. Yeah. But what she's also trying to hide when it comes to Norman mm-hmm. is just her her body, her naked self. Yeah. So even though Marion, having committed, as Hitchcock has defined it in this film, this heinous crime of $40,000 theft, is trying to limit the consequences for her decision. He is saying, it's going to get you in some matter-of-fact way regardless. You can change the car, you can change your name, but I don't want to say fate, but there is almost a role of fate here. The rain yeah. mm-hmm. happens to be Bates Motel. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of other places she could have stopped. Mm-hmm. But as we move through this interesting phase with Hitchcock, yeah. if you take this and then you take Marnie, there's something about women and theft that he's trying to either work with or interested in to create great story. Now, in between those is obviously the birds. But to a certain extent, Vertigo has a bit of a theft feeling in it too because that's like a stolen identity. Mm-hmm. Marion getting to be uh, or having room one as her chosen location for this is really loaded because I think the number matters too. Like it would mm-hmm. it'd be obvious if it was 13. Yeah. But it's number one. It's the one that's closest to the office. It's the one that's closest to the the parlor. It's one that's closest to um, his house. The first choice he makes, do it in six. Yeah. But the first choice he makes, it's like, is is what he's saying. This is really how I'm hardwired. Mm-hmm. This is the this is my this is my go to. Sure. Number one. This is my go to. Like inside him. Like the the first choice you make. Am I gonna eat this or eat that? Number one would be the one you choose oftentimes. So it's it's in him. And even though he's trying to work through it and not fall prey to these terrible, terrible urges, guy can't help himself. I want to ask you two more questions, then we'll move on to the parlor scene. Yeah. Uh, the first one, we find out later at the end of the film that there's other missing girl cases in the area. And yeah. it's, this isn't Norman's first four-way foray into murder. Uh, is this mother then going from room three to selecting room one? Yeah. Or is this Norman's decision-making? Is Norman looking for a suitable mate for himself? I think the Norman Norman mm-hmm. would love to get out of this business yeah. and have a normal life that isn't confined to the Bates Motel that's been moved off the highway and no one ever comes here. Right. Uh, I think it could be one or the other. I mean, that's kind of an ambiguity that Hitchcock likes to play with. It's mother's intention of, oh, good, pray. Mm-hmm. or a suitable mate, and let me see where this goes. Let me see if I can woo her a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
I think you can kind of interpret it uh, both ways here. But this parlor sequence is really interesting, and there's like a, it's a tale of two halves. Uh, I'm going to play some audio from both of them. Do you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. You've never had an empty moment in your entire life, have you? Only my share. Where are you going? I didn't mean to pry. I'm looking for a private island. What are you running away from? Why do you ask that? No. People never run away from anything. The rain didn't last long, did it? You know what I think? I think that... we're all in our private traps. Clamped in them. And none of us can ever get out. I see this very much, and I want your thoughts as well. It's like an interrogation scene. And to me, my interpretation of all interrogation scenes is they're an undressing of the other person. Yeah. Trying to figure out who they are underneath all those layers. It's like peeling an onion back. And so he's trying to find a little bit out about Mary. And that's how we find out, you know, she's kind of running away, which he doesn't tell her I stole $40,000. But he kind of figures she's in some sort of trouble Mm -hmm. why she would end up here. And then she's trying to figure out a little bit more about him. Well, how come you never leave? Do you go hang out with friends? I think, well, a boy's best friend is his mother, red flag number one. <laughs> but I think she learns a little bit more about him him as well, but a little bit mainly more about herself because it's at the end of this conversation when she's going to realize, I'm going to go back to Phoenix and make things right. Do you almost feel like you're watching them on a first date? Sure, yeah. Have that conversation of get to know me, get to know you? Yeah. It's almost what it feels like. Asking so I- all those same questions? Sure. I think you forecasting is this a suitable mate for me is absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing to have conversation with someone, but if you think about it, it's in the parlor. He brings her dinner. It's very date like. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think he's, this sounds loaded, so I shouldn't put it this way, but he's taken her for a test drive. Yeah. Insofar yeah. as is this one that mother will approve of and seems to be fairly wholesome because if mother doesn't like her, then. And it might be really, really grim for her. I mean, we and ta- me. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about voyeurism last week. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of watching, but there's a lot of watching here as well. I mean, we have an omnipresent uh, vis- uh, uh, eyes in the room with all these taxidermy birds. <sighs> taxidermy is just weird in general. Yep. The stuffing of dead, Anything. of death. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, exactly. So, again, if this is a first date and you have all these eyes watching you, all these birds here and there, and he, he says something interesting too. He's like, I do it on the birds because he has this fondness for them. I could never do it to a dog or to, to like this, but you're kind of doing it to your mother upstairs. I mean, she's a stuffed bird as well, a preserved, as preserved as death can be, a yeah. uh, preserved bird as well. Uh, we could talk about her in, in a little bit, but even them, I mean, the watching, the, the watching through the people, the watching in here, I mean, this is a very voyeuristic film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, when watching this, and just, it's the the, the pitter-patter back and forth between these two is so great. Um, and, you know, performances, you know, like you, you and I went to go see uh, Darkest Hour, uh, the Churchill, Gary Oldman, and great performance in that movie, but it's a very loud Winston Churchill yelling all the time because oh, yeah. he's so angry about World War II. Here, I mean, this is a performance that's so laid back. It's almost like, 
like flatlining, but that's what makes it so good is it's so cold and clandestine and steely and untrustworthy. And I think Marion's safe up until this clip I'm going to play right here. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace? Someplace? And he leans forward. You mean an institution? Dead. A madhouse? Dead. People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring. What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears. The cruel eyes studying you. My mother there. But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. I am sorry. I I only felt... It seems she's hurting you. I meant well. People always mean well, well, don't they? They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course... I've suggested it myself, but I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. She's toast. I mean, the suggestion that you would take, A, the woman you love more than anything, your mother. Why don't you go lock her up in a nursing home where they just let you sit in feces and pee yourself and they come in. Yeah, they're disgusting places. That lean forward. An institution? Mm-hmm. She's, she's toast. I mean, he's the decision has been made at this point that... I have to eliminate you from the equation. And whether that's that that's the mother portion speaking, how dare you talk to me about putting me in a home? Uh, that part, that personality's coming forward. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, this push and pull battle that Norman has with the mother personality. Uh, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but this is kind of very similar to the Kevin Wendell Crumman, like DID. So, yeah. you know, they used to call that split personality. It's now dissociative identity disorder, but this willing and because then he's having conversations with the mother too. And it's just like this ventriloquist act that he's having for no one to see other than himself. If we want to go back a minute to the parlor scene and the argument that that's mm-hmm. a date, yeah, then I guess the bad side of a date for everyone would be rejection and you don't go any further. Sure. I think a lot of Norman's issues revolve around acceptance from a woman. Now mm. your mother yeah. is going to accept you at whatever level. Cause you know, you're from her and you're her son or yep. daughter. Like mm. mothers are just sort of built that way. Yep. So, She's never going to completely shun or spurn any of his affections or um, needs. When Marion says, you need to put her somewhere, 
what Norman is interpreting that is as is a rejection of him because he is his mother. Mm-hmm. So if she's telling him, man, that bitch sounds crazy. You need to lock her up somewhere. He is say, he is hearing that as you think I'm crazy. You want to put me somewhere? What I'm not good enough for you? Mm-hmm. And you, there's an anger that rises in his voice. Yeah. Oh, so when they yeah. click their thuck tongue, click their you know, shake their thick heads and suggest so or that whole bit. Mm-hmm. Um, he's mad because she's told him like, yeah, this date's over and we're not going any further. So then his response to that is. Oh yeah, then I'm going to go to the woman that does think I'm good enough, which is going to be my mother. Mm-hmm. Literally, I'm going to go to her. Mm-hmm. And he becomes her. Yeah. So her spurned his spurned advances, if you want to call them advances, or his spurned affections from Marion's point of view, even though she doesn't know she's doing it, is another chapter and I think what is a really long novel that he has written over many, many decades over the problems that he has with women. Mm -hmm. To take that kind of ethos and put it into Norman, this average run-of-the-mill Anthony Perkins, just boy next door. Good-looking guy. Good-looking guy. Yeah. It's hard not to say, is Hitchcock working through something here with this constant casting of these completely unattainable beauties that he puts in his film? Yeah, that could be it too. I mean... And that's really going to, I mean, a lot of this movie, I think, plays itself out with Tippi Hedren. Yeah. For him. Yeah. Physically. Next and, week. And emotionally. <laughs> well, but, that's this whole era. is right. Rear Window, uh, Vertigo, Vertigo. Uh, Psycho now, and The Birds, even Marnie too, is, yeah, it's all the same prototype. Uh, but, you know, this ends, and it ends with Marion kind of deciding, yeah, I'm going to go back to Phoenix. I'm going to make things right, but I'm I'm not going to drive now in the middle of the night, which she should have. So she's going to, she goes and writes, you know, I took 700 from the 40,000. I going to pay them back this much. I'll keep the car, I guess. And I'm going to go take a shower and just wash myself of all this nonsense. He peeps at her. And I really like this too. So in the psycho, the, 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 the book, Norman's a middle-aged overweight man, a drunkard, very much. I'm kind of thinking like he's like looks like John Wayne Gacy probably. So they slimmed him down, they made him good looking, and they didn't make him a drunk. And I think this is very progressive for 1960s cinema that they didn't. Hitchcock was willing to make a film where the villain would be in the gray, and with that scene when he peeps and then goes up the hill all solemnly and then goes and sits at the kitchen table tapping the glass, struggling struggling with, am I going to go through with this? Right. Is mom going to take over? Am I going to kill this woman? Mm-hmm. And instead of having a scene where he's just getting blitzed drunk, and now we know he's going to become mother because he is drunk. Yeah. To Hitchcock's genius, I mean, leaving it up to the character to grapple with that battle. Mm-hmm. We'd never see, you'd never seen stuff like that before in 1960. Well said. And people, they must've just been like freaking out at like, man, I don't trust this character. I don't trust this director. I don't trust what's going to happen. And then we get this scene coming up here. It's before you play the sound. Yeah. Man, it's, he's flirting with the anti-hero bit. Mm-hmm. We're not quite there. Cause Norman doesn't have any enough good traits to, like fully be anti-hero. You're, but you're trying to find enough to redeem him a little bit. He's making him, okay, this is a key point in a lot of character development on the page and then transferring to the silver screen. You need to give your bad guy something that the audience can at least hang 
some bit of hope on because yeah. that creates empathy. Yeah. And you do feel bad for Norman right now, especially when you hear when he makes the sandwiches and you can hear his mother bitching at him mm-hmm. all the way down in the parlor from the house that's above the hill. So loud, yeah. You're thinking, oh my God, who is that? Yeah. Jesus, that poor guy. He comes just, down all sad with this tray. Yeah. It, which is wet her appetite with my sweet son or whatever yes. that crazy <laughs> line is. So, um, yeah. And then, like you said, the casting to not make him ugly and belligerent. Just this nice, good-looking guy that seems to be friendly enough. Yeah, it's not Ray Milland. It's yeah. Anthony Perkins. Ooh, well <laughs> so perfect. All right, let's hear that sound. So then we get this moment here. We get the flushing of the toilet. First flushing toilet in film history. I mean, we had never seen when she flushes the numbers down the toilet. And she's going to get in the shower and almost like a baptism, wash herself. I've heard that called in, you know, talking about this film. This washing of the corruption. And now she's going to go back to Phoenix, a new woman. Yeah. Uh, But then this happens. Okay, where do we begin? Uh, <laughs> first things first, uh, th- I don't think anyone realizes how truly vulnerable they are in the shower. I've had these conversations with myself personally about, man, if someone just came into the bathroom right now and just like started attacking me, yeah. how would I defend myself? Yeah. A, I'm naked. Am I throwing a soap in? I'm throwing some Dr. Squatch at him. Squirt some shampoo in their eyes. What am I beating him? I'm All so right. vulnerable in that naked state that you have nothing to do then other than what Janet Lee does. I mean, that's her best defense mechanism. Turtle, essentially. Exactly. So, okay, that's the well, first. Well, look, to, to double down on that for a minute, I yeah. think everyone's had an instance where they've been on the can and they've had someone walk in the bathroom on them. Oh, yeah. It's awful. Yeah. Because it's embarrassing Mm -hmm. and you're revealed and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Yeah. I think being in the shower is that same effect, but more so. Mm -hmm. Like you're not in the middle of of pooping. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe we just said this on this podcast. That's fine. But you know what I mean? I do. It's a similar raw state of, of human existence and you are devoid of any defense. Yeah. It's you, the water, and your flesh. That's it. I think she does a good job of fighting back because it's the best you can do in, that, you can do. in that current state. Uh, second thing. Okay, so when we watched this in your, in your class all those many moons ago, I think we did an experiment where we watched it twice, once without music and once with music. Yeah. Hitchcock wanted to do it without music. Right. He was just like, I'm going to shoot it. I'm going to shoot it for real. No, no, no music. Mm-hmm. And you notice a difference. It's to me why I love film music and why yeah. music has such an evocative tone of yeah. how you're supposed to feel. The music is the stabbing. Yeah. It is, you don't see it uh, per se. Uh, you know, maybe there's like a shot in there where maybe you see the knife penetrate a little bit, but right below her navel. Yeah. It's all very suggestive. It's cut so feverishly that, the music does all the work for you. Yeah. It's that's the violence of of the sequence. So to Bernard Herman for saying no hitch, we need to include the music. That's a cute. That makes the scene almost. We know the story on that. Yeah, is Herman eventually had to go with what Hitchcock said because he was the boss. Mm-hmm. He went back later that night and cut it with the music. Mm-hmm. 
played it for him the next day. And the way Hitchcock didn't want Hitchcock gave him some response. Like, I'm so glad I decided to do this with the music. Exactly. Yeah. Thank God. I mean, thank that, God Bernard. Herman. Well, and that's why film is a collaborative effort. Sometimes the director doesn't always have the perfect vision and your composer, your editor can make the, make or break the film for you. You know, we've made the case on this podcast a lot like less is more. Yeah. And I think in Hitchcock's initial viewing of this, he thought less would be more. You have the sound of the water, you have the stabbing of the knife, you have the struggle of movement, and you have her screaming. Mm-hmm. And that, in a sense, is a fairly orchestrated score of death. Yeah. But in the opposite of less is more, the music on this is more is more. And if you think about, if there's no music in this, do we get... Uh, do we get all of those theme probably, songs? Probably not. Do we no. get um, the emperor, the empire, what's it, the... Emperor's March. Imperial March, yeah. yeah. Like, do we have any of that? Probably not, yeah. Not these, like, evocative, villainous tones that, you know, mean evil. We're going to get to, or maybe we're not, maybe this is it, like the influence that this film had, especially in the slasher horror genre. Oh, yeah, this is, yeah. The birth of it. Yeah. In this moment right now, Mm -hmm. which on a lot of lists, this is the most memorable scene in film of all time. I saw four or five different lists that had this as number one. Probably not going to argue with that. Hard to. Well, you put yourself in a 1960s cinema and yeah. everything you've seen before and Humphrey Bogart and Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and uh, uh, Lauren Bacall and yeah. all, all these Hollywood films that have made a certain way. You watch this and you get to this scene. No one had ever seen anyone murdered like this before right. with a knife. Everyone's always shot. I got shot you with my gun in a film noir. Mm-hmm. No one had ever seen anyone killed like this. So this is huge. Uh, but it's, it's tantamount to the staple for so many other genres. And I don't just mean slasher horror. I mean, we have theme songs that now Mm -hmm. accompany characters. Yeah. And I think this moment is wickedly influential for that going forward in film. Yeah. But the fact that Norman's uh, weapon of choice is a large butcher knife. I mean, that's evocative of slasher, (laughs) but what we'll get into is that is, you know, the whole penetrative element of that. Right. I mean, that's the large phallus that he's using because Norman, if we don't get into that, because it's 1960s cinema still, he's probably impotent as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. All this psychological mind games that his mom's playing with him. He probably couldn't even get it up with Marion if he wanted to. Yeah, you're probably right. This is it. It's done through this scene, so... uh, That's come up two times in the last two weeks is impotence. Yep. Hitchcock, maybe. You said it. He might have needed the blue pill, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Yeah, he might have. Uh, So of all the things that go into the technical elements of this shower scene, and there's lots of, like, trivialistic moments on how he did it, which is your your favorite of all those? Um... Well, I think the chocolate syrup's good. That's very innovative to have something viscous and yeah. with volume yeah. to look good in black and white. Yeah. And because it is black and white, we can't show real gore, so this is the next best thing. Um, what I really appreciate about this scene is the that pull-away zoom yeah, in so from I was her just eye. Say, yeah. That scene's amazing. I, I love that. If you all go and watch that very, very close, you got to watch it hard. Um, as the water goes down the drain, we pan out to Marion slumped over the side of the bathtub with her face on the tile floor. It looks cold and wet. just feels awful. Death. just feels like death. As the camera pulls further and further away, if you watch her left, I think it's her left eye, the one that's on the tile floor. Yeah, I believe it's her left eye. It jigs twice. There's two little jiggers that it yeah. gives that feel like the last little bit of life. Yeah, the death rattle. Seeping out of her. Mm-hmm. Um that was done because she 
you know, was forced to keep her eyes open for that long. Yeah, I can't imagine. It's just a natural response. Sure, yeah. But if you watch, if you watch real close, there's a real little one first, and the second one is pretty significant. Like you can see it flitter. Yeah, towards the end, I think. And you just know that the last little bit of life is seeping out of her. There's a lot of really interesting things. What they're stabbing, exactly what is that one knife and that one shot? Because it doesn't look like the same butcher knife. It looks very dildo like. Mm-hmm. The bodysuit that she wears. If you can freeze frame it, and it's an it's an art to do it. But if you can freeze frame, I think it's the third stab that we see. Mm-hmm. The knife does seem to penetrate the skin right below her navel, and it it gives like there's a little, which I'm sure it didn't. But yeah, I think you should watch this three times. Watch it as is. Yeah. Watch it with no music, and then watch it in slow motion. Yeah. Uh, my favorite part is when Norman pulls the curtain back, and you see his eyes. Yeah. Uh, like above the top, like that's grim reaper like, huh? So grim reaper. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to say about it is, um, in the novel. Uh, she's beheaded in the shower. Obviously, you can't do that in the 1960s. Have her head rolled down into the drain. Uh, but that, that that was probably, you know... Yeah, again, less is more. I don't know if I even want to see that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But now we get, oh, God, mother, blood, blood, and the cleanup. And I love the change. I mean, to me, the real Norman comes down and is horrified at what's taken place. Yeah. Covers his mouth, and the bird pitcher falls on the floor. Of course, it's a bird. Mm-hmm. And then, like, he's, like, got his mouth covered and is trembling for, like, five seconds. And then puts his hand down, and he goes right to work. Time to get to work. Cleanup. And then the cleanup is meticulous. Like, he's done it a time or two? Exactly. And he has. Yeah, exactly. So, I'm going to clean it up with the shower curtain. I'm going to mop the drain. I'm going to flush this. I'm going to make sure all this is I'm going to wrap her in the curtain. And I'm going to grab the money that's hidden in the newspaper on the nightstand and throw it in the trunk of this car. Now, brutal. Now, when we talk about traps and being confined... If Norman opens up that money, is that enough of an escape for him to get away from the Bates Motel? Yeah. Yeah. Brutal. (laughs) Yep. It goes into the trunk with the body and into the tar pit behind the Bates Motel. Wow. I love that scene, too, when he puts it into the the pit and it's like it almost looks like it's not going to go fully in and it's like the it's stuck Mm -hmm. and he's just eating that candy corn. Again, candy corn is disgusting, but this nervous, you know, fidgety nature of Norman Bates... And then it goes in. He's like, okay, we're good. Yeah. But are we good? Now we're going to get the whole investigatory element of of this film here with Sam Loomis, uh, Vera Miles, Lila comes in and is like, do you know where Marion is? Is she hanging out in this general store with yours? I don't know what you're talking about. She hasn't been seen in a couple days. Maybe she came up here with you. And so they're both like, they don't know what's going on. And enter Martin Balsam's <laughs> detective private investigator, Arbogast. Arbogast. Yeah. Uh, Who's now did Lila hire him or he's just, is he, or did, is he, is he here? No, he, he happens upon the store that Lila and John Gavin are in because he's been hired by the bank for the missing money. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The real estate people. Yeah. Yeah. So he comes in and like Martin Balsam gives another good performance in this film because he's kind of like a no bullshit kind of guy. It's almost like he sees through every lie. Yeah. Well, I know she's having this affair with you, Sam Loomis, and I know this sister, and I know she did this. And then when he goes to the Bates Motel and him and Norman are kind of going through it. Tell me all about her. Well, um, she arrived uh, rather late one night, and she went straight to sleep and uh, left early the next morning. Well, how early? Perkins is so good in oh, this scene. very early. Mm-hmm. Which morning was that? Uh, the... Um, 
the, 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 the next morning, Sunday. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, did anyone meet her here? No. Did she arrive with anyone? No. Uh-huh. Did she make any phone calls or... No. Locally? Did you spend the night with her? No. Well, then, how would you know that she didn't make any phone calls? Well, she was very tired, and, uh, see, I, now I'm starting to, to, um, remember it. I'm making a mental picture of it in my mind. You know, if you make a mental picturization of something... That's right, that's right. Take your time. Um, she was, she was sitting back there. No, no, she was standing back there with a sandwich in her hand, and she said uh, she had to go to sleep early because she had a, a long drive, uh, ahead of her. Mm -hmm. Back where? Back uh, where she came from. No, you said before that she was uh, sitting back. Oh, uh, standing. Yeah, back yes, but back in my uh, in my parlor there, uh, she was very hungry, and I made her a sandwich. And then she said uh, that she was tired, and she uh, um, had to go right, right to bed. Oh, I see. He's amazing because you, <clears throat> through Arbogast's great detecting, <laughs> is asking all these very difficult questions to Norman, and you just see him caving under the pressure, lying, trying to come up with responses of. No, I didn't spend the night with her. Yes, she left early in the morning. Yes, she did this. And that kind of fidgety, fumbly nature of almost like you're slipping over your lines, like he's messing them up, mm -hmm. just really shows you how unhinged Norman is. Like, he's really struggling to keep it all together. Yeah. Like, he's just going to, like, leap over the thing and just choke out Arbogast right now mm -hmm. is probably, you know, what other movies w would do. But he's crumbling. I mean, this psychological battle that's taking place between him and Mother is just crumbling beneath him yeah. but then arbogast leaves says she was there she registered on the thing as marion samuels i'm gonna go back and investigate and then we he goes into the into the house and we get that scene too he goes up the stairs really slowly and then gets killed and comically almost stumbles back i kind of like that shot though i mean I you know people kind of like oh it's cheesy looking i kind of like him you know stumbling back because you know it is Martin Balsam stumbling. It's not some CGI thing. It's really him. It's not a stunt actor. And then he just goes, and that 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 trickle of blood on his face uh, is really effective. Pretty good jump scare, too. Yeah. When we get the Over overhead shot, mm -hmm. and uh, Norman comes out his mother sharp. Yeah. And yeah, lets him have it. Two questions for you here in the coming scenes. So one of my favorite moments of the film is when Sam Loomis comes to the basement to... Arbogast <laughs> and Bates is over there by the tar pits or whatever that, that mud pit yeah. is. And he just like looks over and the camera pans into him, the shadowy steely, like death stare, man, that's evil. Yeah. Like that's a monster that we haven't seen in cinema ever, ever. And you should be scared of what that person's capable of mm -hmm. doing and how, like how he, the rationale of why he's doing it is, Man, I wish, Time Machine, I would go back and just see A, music festivals, because I love music, yeah. and B, old films, just so I could see how people reacted to these things, because how could people, and then Hitchcock had that crazy thing of no one will be admitted into the movie after it has started. They must have lost their minds watching this. I can't imagine, like, the nervous, like, Protestant mother in, oh, yeah. in row three watching Psycho just being okay with it. Mm-hmm. There's no way. And even for the the non-troubled by the images, to start fresh with a brand new female lead, because mm. the big one that was top billing on the posters and 
the recognizable name is gone. Is gone forty eight minutes into the movie or something like that. Just starting fresh with someone new. It's now, a bit uh, exhausting. Is it, you think this is a bit of pay, uh, pay it forward for Vera Miles? Because remember in our Vertigo, she was supposed to be the Kim Novak, and she got pregnant, so she couldn't do it. So yeah. is this hitch being like you couldn't do Vertigo, but I have a role for you in Psycho? Yeah, yeah. So okay, the second question I want to ask. So after he kills Arbogast. And Sam comes to investigate. Norman has this crazy conversation with his mother. I've had enough with you, mother. And I'm just, what are you going to do with me, Norman? Yeah. And he goes and takes her from the upstairs bedroom and goes and puts her in the fruit cellar. Mm-hmm. Psychologically, thematically, what do you think that represents for Norman? Trying to take that and bury it in the Repress recesses it. of your mind. Yeah. You bury it. Yeah. Yep. What better play than like a fruit? And people had fruit cellars back. In the mm-hmm. day, yep. but I'm gonna take this decrepit, decomposing corpse and go put it in there, and maybe I'm making some progress on getting better. Jeez, maybe not. Maybe not. But I feel like Norman's crumbling, and man, they're gonna find out about me, and they're gonna find out about what everything I did. Uh, but Arbogast is missing now. Marion's missing, so Sam and Lila. It's a crazy scene too with the judge and. The judge's wife of like, I helped Norman pick out his wife's burial outfit. Periwinkle blue. Periwinkle blue. <laughs> and then when they go to church the next morning, of course they went to church. And then she's like, I already went over there. Everything's fine. You know what I mean? And that's not good enough for the characters in this film at this point. Nope. Until I see it for myself with my own two eyes, I'm not going to believe it. So they go pose as a married couple at the Bates Motel and... They got to find out what happened to Marion. I mean, they find the little piece of paper in room number one there. 40,000 on it. Yep. And it proves she was here. Something right. was here. But we need to go look in the house because, I like, again, to uh, doubling down on what Grace Kelly was doing, the seeking of the female for adventure. And I'm willing to cross that threshold and go into the unknown. Yeah. Grace Kelly did it. And now Vera Miles is like, I'll go into the house. I'm okay with Sam's like, you will do no such thing. <laughs> So they kind of create a diversion, and he's going to distract Norman while she goes and investigates the house. And I really like that scene where he walks to, like, the main office, and Norman's just kind of waiting there. You looking for me? And then it's almost like he knows what they're what they're doing. He's, like, he's, he's privy to what they're investigating and doing. And mm-hmm. they get into a nice exchange and, you know, into a f- battle of fisticuffs as Marion's kind of going through the bedroom and I love that dent in the bed. You know what I mean? Like how long has this body has it Mm. been there? Yeah. And everything looks very well kempt as uh, was, as was. So some OCD tendencies with Norman Bates as well, probably. Do you get the feeling that um, Vera miles and John Gavin are on the road to becoming a couple too? Maybe feels a little bit like it doesn't. Yeah. It it seems inappropriate to go there now because of Marion's predicament, (laughs) but yeah, why not? Um, Strange parallelism happening here. This is what John Gavin did with Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. They got a hotel, seedy or otherwise, in the middle of the afternoon and spent some time together. Yeah. He's doing it again now with her sister. Very strange that this parallelism revolves around the same man because I've always thought <clears throat> that John Gavin and Perkins are close enough appearance wise in sure. this film to not be done on accident. Now he liked that kind of looking guy. Yeah. Like that's how he liked his men to look like that in film as well. Yeah. Exception of Stewart. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe that's not true. Is it really? Cause it, yeah, Sean Connery, he fits that mold too. Grant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so what's you, his name in Rod Taylor? <laughs> yeah. The time machine. Um, 
I'm not quite sure what point he's trying to make there. I'm not sure where those two similarities are going other than maybe John Gavin is part of this insofar as an exciting or exhilarating element for Norman to look up to that makes him all the more aggro. Um, John Gavin might be a nymphomaniac and he just goes from one person to the next and that's why he doesn't want to commit. (laughs) It does seem sort of, that need seems to be more fulfilled in John Gavin than it does Sam Loomis than it does in Norman, right? Yep. I don't know. Did you know Gavin was in the running for Dr. No, James Bond, 1962? Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't think they wanted to go like, with like a full American actor, they wanted it to be like a Brit or like mm. from the UK. Interesting. But yeah, I think there's some screen tests that exist with him auditioning for Bond. Interesting. Which is, I only know him from this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so they get in the fisticuffs. She's investigating. It's weird up there. She can't quite put two and two together. And the audience is probably like, I don't understand this. Because like, then there's his Norman's room as well, right? Yeah. And so then she's hiding in the fruit cellar. Norman comes to the front door, and then I, I noticed this last night. So Lila's not hiding very well. She's, like, pressed up against, like, that banister that leads to the basement, and Norman does, like, a... Mm-hmm. I think he sees her. I do, too. And he's like, you know what? Mother's coming out, man. Yeah. And so he goes upstairs, changes real quick, and she goes in, thinks uh, she sees uh, Mrs. Bates, and... Mrs. Bates... There's a lot to unpack in this scene. Yeah. First being that reveal turn of skeletal mother. Great reveal. Vera Miles has one of the all-time best screams in any horror film ever. I mean, this mm-hmm. it's amazing. And then Norman in the threshold, dresses mother, knife erect. Yeah. <laughs> when we watched it in the class, I mean, I think in 1960, it's an old film, 50, 60 plus years old. People are like, yeah, he looks so silly. He's dressed cross-dressing. I don't think there's anything funny about when he walks into the threshold. That, to me, is horrifying. I'm with you. And Especially that crazy Joker smile on his face. I'm like, what is going on? It's like, it's not even refined. Like, maybe if he had time to, like, put makeup on and a wig and, like, Ugh. it's like he rushed up there to put it on and I'm coming to murder. Yeesh. So that's horrifying to me. And then, thankfully, John Gavin, in the nick of time, like, stops Norman. And, you know, to me, I think Anthony Perkins is a formidable adversary that he would put up a fight and just start stabbing John Gavin. But what Gavin does is he starts unbuttoning the buttons of the dress. And to me, that's the veil of Norman's personality. When that starts to come off, it's it like weakens him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, yeah, skin- he almost goes, it's like an erect version of limp. Like he's, he's rigid, but gives up the fight entirely. Yeah. De-armored and it's like Samson and Delilah. Yeah. Like the personality is being de- de-masked. Yeah. Yeah. Good catch. It's a great scene. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's horrifying. I mean, it's it's this move 1960 to 2020 
62 years old. I mean, yeah. this movie's old. That scene's effective. I agree. And then, okay, now, post-murder aftermath. This little, is a little long here, but we get to the big moment. I have some I have some clips of that too, but I'll play it and then I'll, I'll kind of explain why I think this is even in the film. Again, we get to the point too, is Hitchcock good at ending his movies? Maybe not. I mean, I think the, yeah. the, the scene I just played, that's the ending of the movie. Cut to black, Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> but here we got to tie up all the loose ends and this, and I'm kind of glad he does for this film specifically with, with Norman later, but let me play this. You have to go back 10 years. To the time when Norman murdered his mother and her lover. Now, he was already dangerously disturbed. Had been ever since his father died. His mother was a clinging, demanding woman. And for years, the two of them lived as if there was no one else in the world. Then, she met a man. And it seemed to Norman that she threw him over for this man. Now, that pushed him over the line and he killed them both. Matricide is probably the most unbearable crime of all. Most unbearable to the son who commits it. So he had to erase the crime, at least in his own mind. He stole her corpse. A weighted coffin was buried. He hid the body in the fruit cellar. Even treated it to keep it as well as it would keep. And that still wasn't enough. She was there. But she was a corpse. So he began to think and speak for her. Give her half his life, so to speak. At times, he could be both personalities, carry on conversations. At other times, the mother half took over completely. Now, he was never all Norman. But he was often only mother. And because he was so pathologically jealous of her, he assumed that she was as jealous of him. Therefore, if he felt a strong attraction to any other woman, the mother's side of him would go wild. Crazy. Well, what is up with this chetty, chetty Kathy here going on <laughs> here in the sequence? But kind of the, some of the stuff he was talking about, that's Ed Gein. Yeah. Ed Gein took his mom out of the grave, kept her up at the house, he he didn't like dresses her, but he wore like skin suits of like bodies around town and people he was killing. Yeah, so bowls that he was eating out of from the tops of skulls and like yeah. lampshades from vulvas. Like yeah, fucking the, the Ed Gein house is a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. Robert Block lived uh, forty miles from him. How about that, that's what kind of inspired him to write the novel in the first place. But. I think the other issue brought up or the main issue brought up is does he know how to end his films mm -hmm. this is a very heavy exposition dump in a movie that hasn't been really troubled with that huge it's like five minutes i do kind of like this although the parlor scene is almost eight minutes long um it's it's more interesting dialogue than mm -hmm. this uh i don't know how to get around this it's it's clunky um it is Tying up loose ends for an audience that probably is what in the hell did we just watch right now? That's what I've always thought. It has to be because there's no other reason that this guy would put that in there. This guy, this guy's name is Hitchcock. That Hitchcock <laughs> would put that in there other than for the benefit of his viewing audience. To, to me, the fact that audiences, the scene prior just saw Norman cross-dressing with a knife screaming, I'm Norman Bates, mm -hmm. uh, trying to kill the people in front of him is so shocking and so outlandish that 
this scene's almost like the psychologist talking directly to the audience, yeah. psychoanalyzing them, saying, let me tell you why he did what he did. Because film audiences hadn't seen something like this before. Right. Everyone, I know Peeping Tom had come out prior, and that's a different character study. Everyone of a, in America saw that film. Well, of a different sociopath and yeah. whatnot, but like... We, we were used to Godzilla and Gloop Monsters and mm-hmm. The Blob and Creatures from Black Lagoons and evils that were supernatural, yet we could be like, it's science fiction. Right. Not evils that are like, man, this guy is like, this is the guy I go to church with. Mm-hmm. This is the guy that like, he's, yeah, I went to school with him. You know what I mean? Like, this is a tangible evil that needs to be explained. So I'm okay with the heavy exposition dump because, again, 1960, they're probably... Shit in their pants in the theaters right now. <laughs> is Eyes Without a Face 61? No, I think that's 57. 54, 56. Yeah, okay. So that's even a little, but again, again, foreign. No one saw that. No one's watching that in the States. So right. for a full-blown name like Hitchcock, yeah. 1960 cinema, this is pretty important. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that scene ends, and I always appreciate, you know, Vera Miles, but did he kill my sister? Yes. <laughs> yes, he did. Like, she's still waiting for the truth, you know what I mean? And no one knows where the body is. Right. Uh, so we cut from that. We know Norman. Norman's a psycho. He asks, he's a little cold. He goes, Should I go give this to him? Yeah, sure, go ahead. And then he goes to the thing, and this is the part that always trips me up, is when the guy goes and gives the blanket, and we're, like, in the hallway, and the little voice goes, Thank you. Ooh. Oh, that, like, what's that coming from? I'm not even going to swat that fly. Yeah, that scene, that scene's crazy. I mean, it's like, well, I, well they caught me, and the, it's this internal battle he's having with the mom and Norman's self. And I hope they are watching, and they'll see he wouldn't even harm that fly. To a slow triple dissolve, which is Norman with that crazy little sinister smile up underneath his brow, and then mom's. Rotting corpse, yeah. and then the grill of the car coming up through both of them from the swamp or brilliant. pit or whatever. Brilliant. It is. It's so good. Yeah. Now end your movie, Hitchcock. That, now that, end that's it. great. Oh, mm-hmm. perfect. Yeah. So there's just so much to talk about. I mean, you know, the everything, all the aspects with the birds. I have a few little, just little anecdotes here. Uh, you know, this film came out, and, you know, initial reception was mixed. I mean, critics were like, yeah, it's good. It's, I don't know if it's great. I mean, it's not that good, but over time, I mean, the reception improved. It was a big box office hit. It was the biggest hit of Hitchcock's career. Uh, money wise again, nominated for four Oscars, including director didn't win. Uh, he purchased the rights to the book for $9,500. Yep. Pennies, man. Pennies. <laughs> uh, Oh, let's see. Yeah, huge problem with the sensors. They had issue with the shower sequence, the opening uh, post-coital scene, and then the toilet, again, because we hadn't seen that before. The no-late policy had been done before. Uh, Clouseau, speaking of uh, Eyes Without a Face, Clouseau, the director. Oh, no, that's Franju. Yeah. Get my French guys mixed up. Clouseau did Wages of Fear. Uh, he did it uh, in France with uh, Les Diaboliques. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a great film as well. That is a great we film. might think about covering that. Maybe we just do French horror one day. Ooh. Do Eyes Without a Face, that one, and then do like maybe like a French extreme stream horror film. Um, <laughs> AFI, you know, we talked about those countdowns that they used to do that they didn't do anymore. 14th best film of all time, fourth best uh, musical score, second best villain, and number one best thriller on its rankings. Sure. And then just I want your initial thoughts here. There's three sequels, uh, Psycho 2, 3, and 4. 
I actually saw Psycho 4 recently, which was direct to, I think, TV movie. Henry Thomas plays a young... No, uh, Anthony Perkins is in it, and he calls into a radio show, essentially confessing his whole life story. And Henry Thomas plays a young Norman Bates, and Olivia Hussey plays Norma Bates. Mm. And then you kind of get it as like, well, did these two like ever bang? You know what I mean? And the sexual tension between mother and son... That movie's not terrible. It's actually a fairly decent sequel. And Psycho 2 is pretty good as well. Yeah. Three's uh, a disaster. Three's a disaster. Jeff Fahey. Uh, the remake. Shot for shot. Gus Van Sant, Dan Haitian, Vince Vaughn. What's your thoughts I on it? I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who at Universal thought that was a good idea. No. I mean, I think it's uniquely cast. I mean, that's when Vince Vaughn was becoming like a thing. And that's an interesting casting decision. But... Why you remake remake a, a shot for shot a movie that people don't care about? You know what I mean? Yeah, and if you, I mean, I think the draw is today Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates. But if you want to see villainous Vince Vaughn, go watch Clay Pigeons, mm-hmm. which is a way better film that's similar in some ways. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure why they chose to do that either because all of the subtlety that worked in the original didn't work in this one because it is shot for shot, but not entirely. There's a couple of weird moments in there, like especially when, when he's masturbating <laughs> that part. And then when Marion gets stabbed in the shower and there's the, the cow and the rain and that bondage chick with the bandage over her eyes. And um, essentially what the, that film did was yeah. make you uh, appreciate the subtlety and the less is more of the original. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing, uh, the show Bates motel with, Vera Farmiga and Freddie Highmore. I thought a couple seasons that were pretty good. I've actually never seen it. The first two seasons I really liked. Should I check it out? Yeah. Okay. They make a huge mistake at the end of the first season. I won't tell you now because I don't want to spoil it. Okay. Had they gone the route that they were going and then killed before they got it to go anywhere, I think they really had something. But it got to be uh, pretty ridiculous in like seasons three and four. They made it four seasons. Wow. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Psycho from 1960. We did it. <laughs> yeah, we did it. But before we wrap up, we got to rate it. We got a couple questions for you. What's your favorite tasting note of 1960 Psycho? It's the shower scene. Yeah. I, it's so on the nose, but it is because it is. Okay. It is because it is. Yeah, that should go on the Psycho tombstone. I got to pick the parlor scene. Yeah. Again, I appreciate a good interrogation dialogue sequence that's telling us a lot through very little. Mm-hmm. And that scene does both. Yeah. Um, okay, let me cue it up here, but what's the oh my God! moment for you in Psycho? It's me with him downstairs in the fruit cellar in the doorway, mm. dressed shoddily with a knife looking like the Joker, the cross-dressing Joker. I, I'm with you. I don't think and it's funny. I think it's pretty scary. Screams, I'm Norma Bates. Yeesh. Yeah. Yeah. I would pick that one, but. I noticed this last night, and I've always really appreciated this moment, uh, the slow panning of him at the tar pits, Arbogast, and he just looks over like, mm-hmm. come over here, I'm going to get you. Like, that's that's the moment where I think horror films changed. It was, we're done with these gleep-glopping hoodoo and poodoo and voodoo creatures, aliens, uh-huh. and now the monster's next door. Mm-hmm. It's man. It's this psychotic. Now you're going to get films like... Texas Chainsaw, Black Christmas, Halloween's 18 years out. Things are going to change yeah. big time. The Italians are going to be really pan, uh, paramount to that with the Giallo films and Mario Bava and what Argento is going to do. Uh, but this is it. You're seeing it unfold like the film monster's changing, and it's it's man. Yeah. So yeah. 
Who's the master distiller on Psycho? It's Hitchcock. It has to be. Um, Perkins is an honorable mention, but I love the fact that he said, okay, the studio's not going to support this, so I'm going to use my television crew, and I'm going to do it for nickels on the dollar. So cool. And still, because it's black and white, which helps some of it um, cost-wise, where it was able to tackle such new material in still mm-hmm. a Hitchcocky, thrillery, artistic way that's smart. And there's a little bit of humor in here too, mm-hmm. touch here and there. Um, especially like when Sam tells the guy, why don't you go out and get some lunch? Go out and eat it. I brought my lunch, sir. <laughs> go out, why don't you go out and eat it? There's some funny parts in there. Uh, it's him. He's just a master at his craft at this point. Yeah. I don't even need big money to do it. I'm so good at this. I'll just storyboard the shit out of it, and I'll do it with these six guys on my television crew. I'll do it. I'll have Saul Bass help me. How about that, Paramount? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to pick Perkins. Yeah. Uh, this is, to me, the villain performance to end all villain performances. It's quiet. It's nuanced. It's scary. It's unhinged. It's different. It's, again, the arrival of a new horror film monster. And, again, like I said, Film performances can be like, I'm mad and I'm angry and I'm not going to take it anymore. Mr. Network. Or you can do... Albert Finney. Oh, so delicately. I mean, it's still so quiet, but the evil behind those words is just as important. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorite film performances of all time. I think yeah. we talked about Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood. This is right up there with me for that. Mm. How are you going to rate and grade Psycho? Just a review. We have Rock Gut, which is like a one-star terrible movie. Yeah. We have Well. If you go to a bar and you order a Well drink, you're getting kind of bottom of the barrel Jack Daniels or you know, maybe Knob Creek. Yeah. Uh, call. I mean, you're getting up there a little bit. Now you're getting some fairly decent bottle. Gentleman Jack makers. <laughs> the Gentleman Jack days. You remember that? Yeah. I, when we thought that was special. <laughs> it was good. It was. <laughs> uh, single barrel. Fairly unique. They make single barrels, and each one has its own flavor profile and its own look, and it's unique into itself. And then the top shelf. When you go buy top shelf liquor at a restaurant or at a store, you're paying like $300. Premium. (laughs) Premium films, premium liquor. How are you rating and grading Psycho? First time ever. Yeah. Single barrel top shelf. Ooh. Wildly unique. Obviously, first time this had been done and a masterpiece, despite the clunky bit with the doctor explaining he was a transvestite and all that clunkiness at the end. (laughs) Uh, it's it's a masterpiece, but it's wickedly unique to American cinema and one of the you know most influential films of all time. I was just gonna say, do you think it's a landmark yeah. changing point? Certainly, good choice. I'll go top shelf. Top shelf premium. Yeah, this is my second favorite Hitchcock film. It is important to what happens to slasher films, to horror, to just cinema in general. The, the accept, acceptable level of violence and sex on screen as well. Mm-hmm. Ooh, a woman can be in her brassiere. What are we going to do with that? Then we're going to have her taking it off in 10 years. You know what I mean? Violence. What are we doing? Oh, we'll just chop a horse's head off in the, the next 12 years. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Oh, yeah, good point. Like, we're so close to pushing and to Hitch's credit. This is why he's on the Mount Rushmore of my directors. He was the guy doing it before anyone else. Yeah. Willing to go there. And with a name like that, the guy's in the trailer, ladies and gentlemen. Right. <laughs> Big deal. Guy's a big deal. So to Psycho, we finally did it. It's in the Rice Smile canon. Let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap.
definitely not soothing. I got to tell you, like, they're, like, playing, like, all the wrong notes, too. They're, like, playing a minor key, uh, opposite notes to, to each instrument to get that effect. Like, Oof. it sounds uncomfortable because it needs to be. Why don't you hit us with the nightcap this week? I really liked this question, by the way. Um, so it had to do with inspired by, um, the shower scene and shower science, even though I tried to type in scene, it came out of shower science. Oh, that was a typo. It was, but I liked the way it came out anyway. Um, so yeah, how do you want to say it in all of cinema? Okay. I'd like you to tell me what are your three most influential favorite scenes in film. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to give you the scene and I'm going to give you the why. I hope you give me the same too. Okay. Number three for me, uh, I'm going to go with 54, 56. We'll do this film one day. It's again in the canon of we must talk about it. Got to go with John Ford's The Searchers. Mm. And the scene for me is the final scene. Ethan Edwards, John Wayne's inability to walk through the doorway threshold because he's A, a man of the frontier, and if he goes in there, he's domesticated. But the closing of the door for me also represents the closing of that specific genre yeah. altogether. It's not like the the Westerns died out all, uh, completely after the searchers. In fact, Peckinpah was going to reinvent them completely, but they were never popular like they were before that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In the 30s and 40s. I mean, that was a go-to genre for filmmakers in the Hollywood system. So to me, the doorway is the closing of A, Ethan Edwards into the, the family and the fr- the frontier, but A, that genre altogether. Good one. Yeah. Okay, so my third is also a John Ford film. Mm. It's the end of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. On the train? Yeah. Mm. The reveal of this career that's been forged from this fake legacy of you weren't the man who shot Liberty Valance, mm-hmm. even though everyone thinks you are. Yeah. And what that has given you in life, including the girl that shouldn't have been yours and all of the fame that went along with it that didn't belong to you. Because John Wayne was the one that shot Liberty Valance, not you. And then in terms of film history, do you think that kind of gave way to fallible characters that were flawed? I mean, not everyone had to be the John Wayne cowboy or Errol Flynn's Robin Hood that were these amazing heroes. You could have a character like Jimmy Stewart who was... Ransom Stoddard exactly. is the beginning of the flawed hero. Like that's an important anti-hero yeah. role. Mm-hmm. And I think a twist ending in a Western is something that you've hard to find. Good choice. Number two for you. Number two for me, I had to kind of think about technology and how it's used in films. Yeah. So thought about Star Wars. I thought about CGI. The film where I think the crux is, is Jurassic Park. And everyone's going to point to the brontosaurus scene where sam neill lord dern and richard attenborough are like welcome to and they're like in awe but i have to pick the tyrannosaur paddock sequence when they're all uh power shut off and it's raining and he gets out because to me that's the perfect symbiose of cgi uh dennis Mirren's cgi and stan winston's practical effects it's never looked better than it does in that scene and anytime i buy a new tv or sound system that's my calibrate scene that's has everything sound. And if you want to see the shifting in technology, I appreciate some volume and some weight. So that's the practicality of me. But then what CGI is able to make it move and give it motion. That's the scene. And that it changed there out. And 
you know, now we have completely CGI creations like Thanos and Gollum and, you know, we're probably a little bit worse compared to those days. But to me, that's the the crux of that technology boom, that sequence right there. It's a really good one. Mm -hmm. I had one that's technology, but I'm going to save it for an honorable mention. And I am going to actually go with number two, go to something that you just mentioned. And it's Luke, I am your father. Mm. Uh, I think everything that this generation experienced in film with who's going to survive the blip and who's going to be brought back was done better and um, more shocking. Yeah. In Empire Strikes Back. In a three-year wait. (laughs) That, I, I just, I can't tell you how that line rocked me and how many conversations I had with Victor Gonzalez, God rest his soul, over was he or wasn't he? How could he be? How could he not be? And we had so much fun yeah. with that. Three years on the playground talking the literally what, what is Return of the Jedi gonna even look like? Yep. Teddy bears. Teddy <laughs> Fuck. Java's Palace for 40 minutes. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's not great two choice. I mean, you know, the weight that the Star Wars franchise carries in film cinema is, you know, huge. Yeah. Uh those the new movies what it looks like on Disney, the prequels and its ability to not satisfy anybody. And then those original films, I mean, the technology, the storytelling, I mean, they're important. I mean, in film cinema. So great choice. Thanks. Number. I'm ready for your number one. My number one. God, this has got to be huge, man. Well, I had to think of a moment that just like for people, like when they saw it, like, what did they even think? And yeah, maybe. Yeah, nobody. I don't think people saw Citizen Kane when it came out. I don't either. They certainly didn't see Mank when it came out. <laughs> Once per episode, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Uh, Check. <laughs> I got to pick Dorothy's arrival to Oz from sepia tone to color yeah. in The Wizard of Oz. There had been color films around that time, but they didn't look like they did in that movie. The Technicolor use and that opening of the door just was an opening into man, what can we do with movies now? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. And, you know, for people don't watch black and white movies anymore. People don't watch old movies anymore. Everyone and their kids and everyone watches The Wizard of Oz. You know what I mean? It's almost like a a ritual. It's almost just uh, part of everyone's film viewing experience. That moment, to me, is so important in, in film cinema. So good, Jesse. Yeah. I played around with The Wizard of Oz, too. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, okay, but great, great choice. Yeah. Hard to argue with the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is the... Are you picking the volleyball scene in Top Gun? <laughs> playing with the boys. Anything that's scored by Kenny Loggins. Can't have it you know, any other way. I, I forgot my joke. I was going to say my number one was that scene and just see what you said, but... Mine's the baptismal scene in The Godfather. In the Godfather. Yeah. Good. Uh, good. What, what can you say? Mm-hmm. Um... Again, another coming soon on this podcast. I mean, we talked about how we were going to do that, though. Mm-hmm. Like, or maybe we didn't. If we were to do what I, I would want to. If we did that, okay. what would be the way to do that? Would be you and I carve out a day, and we sit down, and what we do is we watch the director's cut, which is the whole thing in sequence. Yeah, like not the two pre-telling what happened prior to one. Like, do it all in order. One, two, three. Yep. And then after we finish, you know, like the we could time it out. So like the first two and a half hours would say we'd cut, we'd come cut the show. Yeah. Then go back and do another, cut the show, like boom, boom, boom. 
that would be an amazing podcast adventure. Yeah, it'd be remarkable. By the end, part three, we'd be so tired and exhausted that like, and then three is just not trash. <laughs> but wouldn't that be, that'd be an experience. It would be, yeah. Or from what I've heard, mm-hmm. we could just do the same thing with the new Batman film because it's almost as long as the duration of L3. <laughs> <laughs> we could do that too. Yeah. Great choice. I mean, the Thank baptismal you. scene to in that in that movie is, again, Michael's rising to the power of the Godfather, but the evil he's willing to go through for yeah. sanctity of name, the Corleone family. Oh, God, it's so good. I'm going to give you two honorable mentions. Okay. Go ahead. You're going to give me? You could do you, yours first. I'll do mine. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, one is, for the spectacle of it, the original Kong on the building with the planes, mm. just because I think that allowed people to start to imagine how far we could take the medium and what visually we could do that was limited to just what you could see in your own mind. And then number, and this was literally, this was number one on the list until I pulled into your driveway and then I switched. Okay. I swear to God, that's how fluid this was. Okay. Is the training montage from Rocky. I thought about that one too. Yeah. The story of the underdog, you yeah. know, trying to make it, break it against, you know, ultimate like antagonist. I did think about that one a lot as well. Yeah. An honorable mention. I don't know if I'm proud of this because of we like these movies, but not all of them, but the Avengers assemble sequence for what that means for the cinematic universe. That was kind of a big moment for this current era of movies. We, you and I exist in Mm -hmm. that. The fact that that worked when I I remember leading up to that, they're like, there's no way this movie is going to work. How are they going to get all seven of those characters or six of those characters to coexist together? Mm-hmm. Whedon and crew figured it out. And that scene of, you know what I'm talking about in New York when they, is, it's that shot that like, yeah, rotate. hands around them. Yes. And they're all back to back. Yeah. That's big. I Huge. mean, it's, and everyone's trying to do it. Uh, dark universe, DC failed, dark universe failed. You know, everyone's trying to figure out how to make a series of movies. That's a built in franchise mm-hmm. and Feige and crew did. Now we're a little exhausted. Thankfully, Spider-Man was a breath of fresh air, but like that that's a formula that's kind of, it's got its pros and cons as well. It's hard to argue with that. The one I was going to do for, I had the Wizard of Oz too, not the one you, I was going to have, I wish I was home, I wish I was home, or like clicking up that's the That's pretty heels. good too. Yeah. You know, Jesse, yeah. it's weird that the Wizard of Oz came up, I think for what might be the first two or three times on this podcast ever. I would love to talk about it. That's what I was just going to say. There is a cask somewhere that is the on-TV once-a-year cask. Well, they we, always show The Wizard of Oz at Thanksgiving. Well, we already, we already, we already did, did It's a Wonderful Life. We just do it again. Well, we can do Christmas Story. You know what I mean? There's, there's a cask there somewhere. There's a horror film. We could probably pop into that as well, too. Which one? I don't know. <laughs> the problem is, oh, so you would do like a Halloween, a Thanksgiving, and a Christmas one? Ooh, that's good. So that would be a really long cask. Just a holiday cask. The to TV me, holiday cask, the, Miracle on 34th Street instead of It's a Wonderful Life. Wizard of Oz has so much to talk about, too. Whether I know. The, the, the skin poisoning of Buddy Epson or just the Henri Munchkins running amok on the set. Well, you know what? Okay, so here's another idea. Okay. We've never done a musical either. Yeah. But we could do a cask that is the introduction of music and or of, of um, color into film. So if we did, like, Singing in the Rain... We did The Wizard of Oz and then what, Gone with the Wind? Man, yeah, maybe not. There's another one in there somewhere. We'll find another one, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That'd be pretty good. Those are kind of important films. Yeah. And I'm not in a, I don't really want to do a musical, but Singing in the Rain's a fun movie. Yeah, I saw that recently. The movie's pretty good. Except for the stupid ballet part, like it's all pretty damn good. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll think about that. Again, we're never starved for content. There's four casts we just talked about in five minutes. Exactly. So... Ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap on Psycho from 1960. Uh, it was another heavy hitter for this podcast. It had to be talked about at one point. But we're continuing the Hitchcock train next week. Two years later, he's going to make a little film called The Birds. And it's going to be rife with thematic elements and sexual tension and crazy behind-the-scenes stories. I can't wait to talk about it with you. And you can lay forth to the right audience why the birds attack the people of Bodega Bay. I've got it. Excellent. Well, that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about, so cheers to you. Cheers to you. And your leg. <laughs> you beat me Damn by it. one second. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you all next week. I got to get going. I got a vacation, road trip, work trip I got to get on. I hope I don't have to stay at the Bates Motel. But if you do want to see it, that set is as is at Universal City, uh, Universal Studios, Hollywood. You can go see it. It's it's like the coolest thing you can go see over there. Before you go on that trip, would you mind coming with coming with me to the fruit cellar? I got a wardrobe of clothes uh, I need you to help me bring up. Why do you up. have a fruit cellar, Matt? Wow. We'll see you next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Psycho is property of Paramount Pictures and Chamley Productions. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time. Cheers. Oh, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see, and they'll know, and they'll say... Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly.